0: So, this evening, I would like to look at uh, different things. And one of them is uh, selfing, and another one, love and compassion, as I generally like to look at this at the end of a retreat. But first, I would like to look briefly at selfing, because generally in Buddhism, you're supposed to have no self. Personally, I think, actually, part of the meditation for daily life is actually to look at selfing and actually cultivate what I would call positive selfing and try to dissolve what I would call negative selfing. And in a way, one of the important ways to dissolve partly part of the negative selfing is what I mentioned throughout the week, is that reducing ourselves to one condition within our being, that it be one thought, that it be one feeling, that it be one sensation. And also to see that positive selfing doesn't just appear out of nowhere, that actually positive selfing, we have to work at it. In the same way we have to work with negative selfing, we have also to work with positive selfing, that actually we have to look at what is it, and I think that's what meditation is about. What is it that helps me to be wise, to be compassionate? What is it that helps me to be stable, to be open? And to see that this is not foreign to us, That we actually, even before we started the meditation, we were able to do that. That actually the meditation helps us to develop that more. And I think in a way it's very important to look at how in a way we diminish ourselves. And to me this is something that I find very sad in a way. When we diminish ourselves, and in that way we kind of really stop our creative potential from arising, from manifesting. And just one example, a brief one, is in a way if you have this thought, which is a thought, a feeling, a sensation, I think it all comes together. You might feel a little low, you might feel a little frustrated, you might feel a little in pain, things are not possibly working the way you want it, And suddenly you feel, you think, I am useless. And this is extremely painful. But to me, this is what I would call not a useful category. How can we think in terms of a human being or any life form as useful or useless? I think it can be useful to look, am I skillful? Am I unskillful? Was I wise? Was I compassionate? But to think and feel, I am useless. In a way, you're stuck already. What can we do with I am useless? You really cannot do anything with that. It's kind of like, boom. It's kind of like, in case you, I am a failure, I am hopeless, I am rubbish This is, I think this is a strange category to, to, to give to any life form and especially a human being and especially oneself and so in a way to really look at instead of taking this category as this is real and this is all there is to my life in this moment to kind of I mean, could I use another word to define what is difficult in my situation? I think it's in a way to try, this is a meditation for life, is also to creatively engage with our inner language. But not just language in the thought, but in a way it's kind of also this feeling. And that's why I said before you name the feeling, try to be with more the sensation as it arrives, instead of very quickly saying this is this, that, or another. This is just a feeling. What, what What is a texture? Is it fiery? Is it a little agitated? Is it kind of very kind of low energy feeling? So in a way, with the help of the meditation, to try to creatively engage and see how we in some way give rise to what I would call the negative selfing and also how can we see within ourselves what I would call the positive selfing and to really start to that's where I think comes the balancing what is so important to balance when we seem to be a little focused on the negative to intentionally try to focus on the positive. Not to ignore the negative, but try to focus to kind of like changing little the groove, to balance things out, to look what makes it happy in my life. How can I open my whole being to the moment? <sighs> and so in a way to look at how we fix ourselves. And if I just... A small example from my own experience. When I was at school, I was not very good at writing. I mean, in those days, it was French writing. I was not very good at composition. I was not very good at writing French. I always used to have terrible marks in in French, and even worse, in philosophy. And math was not too good either. So I was generally, you know... I could manage, but... There was some trouble And so in a way, although I wanted to be a journalist But this was to save the world um, I never thought of, you know, writing as a career I never would have thought of that And But I was in Korea And I started to translate Because I was the only one who could translate in those days And so I translated the, the teaching of Master, Master Kuzan And then somebody was reading them and said, oh, but this is good. This would make a good book. Why don't you do this with somebody else whose English is very good? I thought, oh, why not? We can do this. So I started to become a translator. And then a little editor, too. And then somebody said, oh, you know, don't you want to do this book with me? You know, you know about Buddhism. I know about ecology. You know, why don't we do this together? I said, oh, why not? We can try. And then somebody asked me to write about something else. But, and for me, writing is a very creative activity. I find it really creative. It's really, I find it very uh, inspiring, actually. Very kind of like uh, extending, expanding. But if I had thought that I was a bad writer, I would always be a bad writer. I was useless at writing and composition. If I identified with that, then I would, when somebody said, oh, you can do that, I would have said, no, 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 I can't do it. But because I did not really identify with it, and every time I thought, why not? Let's try it. So in a way to see that when we identify in a reducing way, we don't leave ourselves much space. And to see how the meditation can help us to say, okay, within certain limits, of course, I will never become a surgeon, that's for sure. <laughs> but within certain reasonable limitation, to see how can I help myself to kind of allow, again, that positive, what I would call that creative selfing, that creative expression. And what is also interesting in terms of the selfing is that we are relatively self-centered. We are generally the center of our universe. And the thing, what is interesting with that is that we, because in a way we have to think of ourselves because if we don't think of ourselves, who is going to think of us? I I think this is totally fair enough. So we have to be relatively self-centered. But I think Meditation can help us to diminish the percentage so that we move from possibly 95% more toward the 50%. I think this would be generally kind of the aim. Not the zero percent because I think zero percent is too much. We have to think about ourselves. But what is interesting is that we are (coughs) quite self-centered. We think about ourselves quite a lot. All our thought turns to ourselves, our intention. Not for everybody but for a lot of people and then for some strange reason we don't like ourselves I don't know why not everybody again but a lot of people do not like themselves so they're stuck with this person they don't like (laughs) which makes it a little of a painful situation in a way there is no escape but This brings me to love. How do we feel when we love? I love my cat, and I see my cat, and ooh, I feel warm. I love my niece, when I see her, ooh, I feel warm. I love my husband, when I see him, I feel warm. So, in a way, it's interesting, this love. I would say that's one of the characteristics, the texture of love is warmth. Because I think within love there is what I would call appreciation and caring. You enjoy. I mean, the person brings warmth to your life, and at the same time, you you care for them. You appreciate them. So, to me, this seems to be the main remedy to the situation, is if we were to love ourselves as we love the cat, the niece, or the partner, I mean, we would feel warm all the time because we are with ourselves all the time. Wouldn't that be a very easy way to have that feeling? And to me, this is what is so important in a way that through the meditation, actually we can start to have more of that self-love and to, in a way, enjoy ourselves. And I think this is also, for me, part of the silence. That in the silence, we enjoy this person. We don't necessarily all the time have to have somebody else. We just, it's love by ourselves, to love being with our own company. Because I think love, you know, I think it's very important that we love ourselves or that we love others. I think it's a very important In a way, quality, feeling to cultivate at many different levels. But because it's an opening, in love there is this openness to ourselves, to others. There is this care for ourselves, for others. But also there is that relationship. We love, even ourselves, when we love ourselves, there is this relationship to ourselves. When we love others, whatever, for there is a relationship. So, And when we relate, there is an opening. We're not so fixed and solid. There is this movement of the heart. There is a movement of the being. And and I think that kind of warmth, that opening, that care, is very important for life, I would say, to exist and de- and develop. And I noticed this with my grandmother, actually. In uh, Before she was not so well One of her great joy And my great joy Was to come back From a trip I would come back from a trip And because uh, From the 2000 onward I lived above my mother and my grandmother In the same house So I would come back And I would say to grandma I am here And she would be Ah you hear like, oh, she was so happy to see me. There was this amazing moment of great warmth uh, between each other. And as she, uh, her brain weakened and things like that, came a moment, and I could see it, the moment when actually the relating, the ability to relate to another being diminished, really weakened. And so I would come back, she would recognize me, But there was not the warmth there anymore. It was like something had been cut. But what was interesting is that whenever my niece brought a pet rabbit, very fluffy, kind of little rabbit, she wanted the rabbit next to her the whole time. We could not move her, she the cage and to be next to her the whole time he was there. And I think why that is, is because she could this was the last thing she could relate to with that appreciation and care. And it brought something to her life in that moment. And I think that's why so, it's so important to cultivate love because I think it's just kind of like kind of the basic is nearly as important, I would say, as water, as air. But I think what we have to be a little careful is when we think of love, Generally, I feel we think about attraction. We, feel about, we think about liking. I like them. So if I like them, I love them. If I am attracted, I love them. But to me, I lived a long time in community, in diverse communities. And what was interesting to realize over time is that you don't need to like somebody to love them. Because why do we like somebody in general? We like somebody in general because they have the same way of looking at things, they have the same habits, they kind of see eye to eye with us, and of course they like us. I mean, this is often a kind of quite required part. But what I re- realized in the community that there was people I really did not see eye to eye, even though we were all Buddhists it was very interesting to see we did not see eye to eye in many different ways and so you might not necessarily like that but actually we all deeply cared for each other, we deeply concerned for each other and so now when we see each other after 8, 9 years and we meet again it's like there is this incredible warmth. ah you, I know you, I relate to you I care for you even if you don't agree with them whatsoever. And to me, that was very interesting to see that, to make a difference that very much the love is care, it's concern, it's appreciation, but at a different level than just, in a way, what I would call the picking and choosing level. So what I would talk about in terms of meditation and daily life is, in a way, talk about creative wise love, creative wise engagement with another human being in many different ways that it be family friends acquaintances, I mean there are so many different ways to love, to appreciate, to care because often I think we associate in a way, especially in spiritual circle, love with attachment, Ooh, I must not love because I'm going to be attached But I think, no, you can love somebody actually without grasping. And I think it's really when you don't grasp at the person that you can really love them. I think the less grasping there is, the more love there is. Because in a way, the more care for the person itself and less in terms of our own interest. Because what I find interesting, for example, if you are within a pattern, Partnership or marriage, often what you hear is, "I love you, but," or "I will love you when you don't do this anymore." And to me, this is a kind of like a conditional love. This is not what I would call creative love. How does it feel? And to me, that's what, in a way, the greatest gift of love is the fact that you really accept the person fully as they are, without saying, but, if, when. You just accept them as they are. And they also accept you as you are. And then you can grow and develop trust and even more love. But it doesn't mean that you accept them that you will not talk about what is difficult. The fact that you love and accept somebody doesn't mean that you condone negative behavior. Painful behavior. But if you start from acceptance, I think it would be much easier to look at negative, destructive behavior than before you even have it, you make it conditional. So in a way, this uh, trust is acceptance. But also to see that when we love someone, I think it is not a murder. Often I think we see love especially romantic love as a merger we're going to merge like I think the myth of the merge and this, I had this myth when I was 18 I thought you know if I would love somebody then we could read each other's thoughts I mean now I really would not want that <laughs> but I was you know and in a way to me in a way to love somebody is actually like kind of sharing parallel line. It's like parallel line. You have the space in between where there is a love and the creativity which can develop. And outside of the parallel line you have all the love you can develop with other people, with other things, with other life. So that there can be growth in between and there can also be growth outside. So that, you know, our love doesn't just depend on one person. On one thing, but that actually the love can spread and can be expensive and also take many different shapes, many different forms. And in that level, to see that in a way, when we love, we, even without attachment, there will be dependence, there will be influence, there will be nurturing. And actually, we influence each other, we nurture each other. There is be a certain extent. There is places we where there is less extent. There is other places where there is really much exchange. And we because we appreciate that person in our life. But it doesn't mean that we always have to have that person next to us the whole time. Again, this with this creative love, there can be this movement. It's like the creative engagement with the thing in the hand. There can be movement. Within it, it's not tight. So in a way, I would say the meditation helps us in terms of this opening of the heart to others, to ourselves. And then I think part of that opening of the heart there is compassion. Compassion for me is, I think is very essential and very much part of the meditation process. That we open our heart and we in open our heart to the suffering of the world. That we have this ability to feel, to empathize, to respond, to connect, to open. And I think in a way the the root of compassion is a recognition of life, the recognition of the other. And so to kind of that movement of seeing the other and the next movement Of seeing the pain of the other, and also to see the equality in pain. That when I am in pain, it's very. I think what is important to see in the compassion is that when someone is in pain, two things happen. First is that it's painful, but secondly is that it's isolating. When we are in pain, nobody can feel our pain for us, and at that level. If you have a headache, nobody can feel your headache for you. If you have really a heartache, nobody can feel it for you. Of course, people can empathize, but they will never feel it or they will never take it from you because you are the one who experiences it. And to me, this is when we know this, we cannot but have compassion for somebody we suffer. However difficult the person is, because we feel for that suffering, So in a way, there is the recognition, there is the openness, and, but also there is the availability to the person who suffers. Because it's not enough in a way to feel, oh, I feel your pain. But if we can, within our own limit, the availability to the person who is suffering, so that then there can be a creative wise response. Because I think, in a way, compassion is action. It's not just a feeling, it's a response, it's an availability, it's doing something. But that's why I think the listening meditation is important. It's also, in a way, listening, noticing what is needed, what is asked, what is required. Because it's not what I would call do-gooding, I know what is good for you. That, I think, often is very... uh, unworkable. You think what is good for them, but you really don't know what is good for the other person. You can only know what is good for you. But if you listen to the person, if you really are aware of what's going on, then you can have what I would call a creative wise response to what is needed. Last week, uh, last weekend, Saturday, Saturday, we were uh, celebrating my mother's Year birthday. And just a few days before it happened, we realized that it was going to be there were going to be music and dancing. Some of us were happy about this, some of us were a little oh yeah. No, oh, oh. And I thought mm, music, dancing, because we're supposed to dance between dishes. I thought I have not danced since in 35 years. So very likely I'll just sit and watch I don't mind so we started the dinner and then there was between the dishes and then the music started and then some a few brave ones went to dance and I was just sitting there and then I saw because uh, there was a little niece and little nieces and I thought they wanted to dance but they could not dance on their own so they were kind of like looking like you know, as I thought you know, I just how to there they look like you know pitiful in a way, <laughs> so off I got up and I took a little one she's barely three years old, and we dance and we danced the whole time where we I could dance on the music, of course and and it was wonderful for me for her to just you know dance together in that way and Later on she went back home and later I talked to her father and she said, Oh, she's just talking about she danced with Auntie and it was, you know, it was like, you know, the greatest thing in her life. And it was just this, I had not thought beforehand I would do this whatsoever. And to me, what was interesting is that all the people were so happy I did it. It was weird, because they really did not expect me to dance, because generally I'm quite quiet and peaceful and not engaged in this kind of activity. (laughs) And I might never dance ever again. But it just was this creative response to what was happening in that moment, just out of a feeling of love and compassion. Nothing else. But it was, you know, as Andrew for me, as for the niece and other people. So in a way, the creative-wise response is very much seeing what is the need? Can I do something? Can I do something about this? And actually doing it. So in a way, there is that movement and there is that action. And to me, very much, the compassion is not necessarily heroic. Because often I think we feel in term of compassion, in terms of heroism, and I'm going to be totally self-abnegating, I'm going to give myself to the world, I am going to save the world. I think this is very abstract. I think compassion is opening our heart in our daily life, in our daily relationship, in what we encounter, whoever we encounter, in whatever small or big way. And I think to consider that, to kind of not be compassionate because I am Buddhist, but actually be compassionate <coughs> because I am a human being, because I fear for the other. And as such, to be careful that actually there is a middle way in compassion, in terms of that it's compassion for self and others equally. In Buddhism, it's not just compassion for others. It's for self and others equally. So I feel there is a spectrum that sometimes it goes more toward others, sometimes more toward ourselves, sometimes it is in the middle. So there is not a certain type of compassion. I think there is as many types of compassion nearly as there is people, as there is experience. That in a way, nearly any moment can be in a way, an opportunity for ourselves to be creatively wise and compassionate to ourselves and to others. But in a way, we must be aware of it, aware of that moment and having that response. At the same time, it is true that when we open our heart to other, to the suffering of the world, that we can be overwhelmed. Because it's true, if we open ourselves to the suffering of the world, we can be like, there is so much suffering in the world. I mean, one feel paralyzed by it. And so again, to move from the abstraction, the suffering of the world, and bring it back to what is concrete, what is in our experience, what we encounter. Even in a way, if it makes us feel through that encounter the wider suffering. But I think the meditation then can help us to be with it in a stable and open manner so that we feel sad, we feel compassion but we're not overwhelmed. But it doesn't mean that we don't feel sad. I think the meditation won't take that away but just the disturbing element won't be there. And I know for myself, we go to South Africa regularly every three years, and so we got involved with the people in the African village and help in various ways. And one time, because we're interested in helping the orphan because of AIDS and things like that, there is an organization, and my friend who was a the main organizer, and she said, oh, there is this family who is really in a dire strait. Can you come? I mean, the sub-message was, if you come, you see them, then you'll do something about them. She said, sure, sure, we'll go, we'll go. So we go to this hut, African hut, and I, I have never seen such a bit pitiful sight, in a way, because there was nothing in the hut just a broken pot. There was this old lady. I had never seen somebody look so hopeless, but really this look of hopelessness, of despair. And there was this two little children in rags and covered in scabies. I sat there and I felt so sad. I felt so sad to know that this family had no hopes in terms that there' no way to have any finance because they just begged in the village, which was already extremely poor. And I was also aware at that moment that there were so many other family in that same situation with no means whatsoever. And so I felt very sad. And for the next two weeks, I felt very sad. But I was not overwhelmed by the sadness, I was not disturbed by it, I just felt it in my whole body and mind and I went on my various activity of teaching and doing whatever. And of course we did something for the family and the transformation was amazing in a way because over two weeks we gave money and various things happened. And over two weeks, the grandmother actually became the fifty years old grandmother, and she looked radiant, and she was not despairing anymore. The two little children became two little girls who actually now could go to school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in a way, just our creative response, just in a way, gave them hope and gave them help, so that their life could be a little different. And and so in a way. I think each of us, in a small way, can do that either for ourselves or for others. It doesn't have to be amazing. It's just, in a way, whom do we encounter? Whom do we, can, can we relate and help in this sad way, in this way? But in terms of the sadness, what you have to be careful with is when the sadness of the suffering of others... Links with the sadness within us and then we go into a loop and a loop of this is hopeless and what I would call in, in, in a way nearly the poor me syndrome that in a way within us there seems to be this poor me, poor me, the world is a terrible place and I think a lot of things can in a way start that process of going down there, which is extremely painful. And so that's what I would say, to to be careful, again to bring wisdom to the compassion. To be careful of that sadness of others, the, the suffering of others, triggering a certain type of sadness then which would link into something, again a patcher. And so in a way to be very careful with this, and I think that's why the Buddha said that with compassion one also needs to cultivate equanimity, to cultivate stability. So that's when he has the four Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy. The fourth one is equanimity, to balance out the other, so that there can be an expression, a manifestation, but one is not in a way disturbed. One is not caught, but one can in a way have the feeling Goes for one. One can act upon it, but one again does not grasp it. Does not identify with it. So, in a way, also in compassion, sometimes I feel with compassion, we have this what I would call a little the engineering kind of attitude, which is that if we are compassionate, then. It must work. That if I do something with compassion to somebody else, I help them in any way, I give them something, or whatever it is, that it must work. They must get better. What I do is useful. I mean, this useful thing, again, it must be useful. It must work. I think we're very much in that mode. When sometimes you are compassionate and Who knows? Not much might change. But compassion is actually to be there for the person where they are at, instead of us wanting to engineer their happiness. Of course, I think we can help in different ways, possibly for them to be happier. But sometimes the best thing we can do is to just be there for them, to just listen to just really be there for them as a human being you really care for, you love, you feel compassion with. And without any expectation, without any expectation of any result. That I think sometimes is very challenging to our modern society of uh, expecting results. And again also to have, uh, I think, compassion In a wide way Because often we have what I would call A compassion For easy object of compassion Like, you know, little fluffy rabbits Or whoever of that type Which is easy Especially if the rabbit doesn't bite us Then it's fine If it bites us, we're not so sure about it so in a way, to see that generally we, we're we a little picky and choosy sometimes in our compassion, our favorite people to be compassionate toward. But I think what is important to like, look at is that sometimes people who are really grumpy, who are really difficult, in a way, they are often that way because they're really suffering. And so in a way, to think that you might be compassionate toward them and spend, I don't know. An hour once a week, 10 minutes on the phone once a month. And you might say, Pooh, that was tough, you know, I'm not sure if I want to do this again. It was so difficult, or, she was so complicated. Or, but think you spend, spend 10 or 20 minutes on the phone with them, but they are with themselves all the time. This is much more suffering. The 20 minutes is very small compared to that. And in a way, the problem is not so much... You see, the problem is in the grasping and the difficulty. It's difficult maybe for 20 minutes. Fair enough. But after 20 minutes, it's finished. Then you have your life. You do whatever. You don't have to grasp at it. You don't have to continue with it. As soon as you put the phone down, it's finished, you're not with the person anymore. So in a way often we intensify again our pain by grasping, by bringing something, making it continue when in a way it's finished, it's done. And in a way to let it to let it there so that then we can be open to the next moment, 20 minutes in a month's time. Instead of saying oh, it was so bad, it was so bad, it was so bad, it was so bad. And then you know, intensify it longer than the 20 minutes. So in a way, looking at compassion in this many different ways, what does it mean in my life to have love and compassion for myself and for others? And in a way, how can the meditation help me toward the development of that? And i like just to finish With a short poem This is by Dogen, a Japanese Zen master The way of the Buddha is to know the self To know the self is to forget the self To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things Shall I say it again? Some of you might know it, some of you not the way of the Buddha is to know the self. To know the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And to me, very much, well, this is the meditation process. So well expressed. So that's what I want to say today. Any questions or comments? <laughs> Yes. Um, can you say what you think about um, saying? I think it's a said that, um, To a lot is to suffer enough. It- yes and no. I'm not sure. Again, this can be interpreted in so many different <laughs> ways, and I'm not sure of the interpretation. Is holiness? would give to it it depends what you mean you mean does it mean to love a lot is to suffer a lot does mean because of attachment or is it to love a lot is to suffer a lot because you feel for the suffering of others I think I think even of an individual not having one person a lot understanding I think maybe that's what you think. If you're a monk, it's more easy to think that way. <laughs> I think I've been a bit brainwashed, uh, if I may say so. But uh, this is my uh, point of view. Having <laughs> been a nun for ten years, I would not. I I would not say necessarily. It depends how you love. You see, if you grasp, if you have a love which is grasping. You know, if I think of myself when I first married my husband, I was married to him, we moved to England, at just this role of being, being a nun, and because loving him, it brought me these warm feelings, then I stuck to him. So, at the dinner table, sat next to him. <laughs> so, and after a few months of this, I thought, wait a minute, This is not very good. But yes, this was suffering. In two ways. First, he he felt a little kind of... uh, (laughs) HG, the poor thing. And also, I did not make any other relationship. Because it was too focused on him. So, after that, as soon as I saw it, I said, wait a minute. I stopped. I sat at different places. I did not follow him around so much. And then, yeah my loving field, in a way, really expanded. And I made friends, and also the love between us was much better. There was not this tension. So I think, in a way, this is, the the problem is not with the love, or one person, ten person, hundred person. The love is, how do you love? What do you do with the love you have? And personally, I would not say Love is suffering. I would actually say creative wise love. I think I think it's the best thing you can do. I mean that be I mean you know, you can have kind of many objects, you know. You can have a cat, a niece, I mean whoever. There is many possibilities out there for our love, I think. And a partner too. But I think is one of the problems with love in terms of just one partner, uh, kind of marriage partner, whatever. Is that one thing we don't see when we love somebody, we fall in love with somebody, and wow, whiz, bang, whatever it is. And to see that this will not last, the whiz, bang element, the falling in love, is the newness of it. And it won't, you can't fall in love with one person all the time. It happens once, lasts a certain amount of time, and then it passes, this is like anything. But the love, the appreciation, the care, that, yes, that can continue, that can develop. So in a way, the thing is that when we love each other, we fall in love, poof, generally, and then we get together. And then what happens? The thing is that we associate the love with the feeling. Ah! The warm, woozy, whatever, excitement, attraction, all the rest. But actually what we don't consider is that when two people love each other and move in together, is that actually you have two set, sets of habits <laughs> that come together. This, I think, is something that gets ignored. And to me, that's a very important point, the sets of habits that come together. Negative habits, positive habits. So there is hope. But I think it's very important to consider that because very quickly you see, of looking, again looking at what what is, what is going on and looking again not just at love as a word in an abstract manner but what does love mean in a, what I would call a multi-dimensional context and in a way to discover all the different aspects of it to me that's what in a way is creative ways love and in general I would not say that it engenders suffering but I mean of course I'm sure that his holiness would have a different idea (laughs) but what is interesting with his holiness of Dalai Lama is the the feeling that he exudes when you are with him if you are close to him if you meet him relatively close distance Actually, E, you really feel that he loves everybody. That any any life which comes in front of him, he is ready for it. I think that's, and maybe that's, it, it, in terms of this law, there is, I would say, no suffering also in that law. When you, you know, with him, you really feel this. Anybody who comes in front, it just beams at the person, you cannot feel well, would You can really feel like you're floating. Yes, it's, it's, because I think he's, he Yes is amazing, I would say, wisdom and compassion. Good to say that he probably has some experience himself of maybe of loving too much. I don't know. I wonder what the grounds. I think the ground for him is more theological. I think in, in terms of. Everyday life, people living together. I mean, it's more theological, you know. Kind of, I think there is a little uh, thing in. Uh, I mean, especially. I mean, it's very understandable. You see, from their point of view, if you have a monk or if you have a nun. I mean, one of the thing about. I know people dream of some time of being monks and nuns, and would not it be wonderful? But I mean, it's not easier than anything else. In terms of the spiritual path. But one thing that happened when you're a monk or nun, a good monk and nun, is that you don't have to deal with relationship at that level. And it and it makes it much easier at one level to love everybody at that level. So, but we, you stop being a monk and a nun and boom, you come back to something you ignored for 10, 20 or 30 years I think it's very important to see that something you don't have to address is whatsoever so that I think is important to look at in terms of that but also to see that often if you're a monk or nun strangely enough lots of people go to them to tell them about their marital trouble (laughs) (laughs) and then of course from their point of view that's all they hear That loving is suffering (laughs) at that level, yes, but possibly it's not wise loving. Okay, yes. When I start, I'm finding it more and more difficult coping with the world scenario, world news. We're bombarded newspapers, television, radio, wherever. It's all negative, and it's horrific. Murder, rape, slaughter, poverty, deprivation. You can have compassion as I do, but it it does, it is overwhelming, it is so terrible. And how to deal with it? Well I think that I started by not watching the news. Uh, uh, stop taking the newspapers. Let's tell you, can't get away from it. I mean I think it was a wise move. You know, I think you know I would recommend this twenty half twenty-four hours news with also this all this writing. I mean it's it's very strange. Uh, I personally would recommend to I mean I watch the news on TV maybe just once or twice a week to make sure I know what's going on just in case something has happened. Maybe the newspaper once a week again to make sure I know what's happened in case. And generally it's the same thing. If you if you watch the news every day and read the paper every day, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, it doesn't move very much unless something major happens. So I think, yes, it's very wise to not have too much contact. And at the same time, you can also read what I would call positive news. I mean, I get a magazine called Resurgence, and my favorite uh, pages is when they talk of people active on the field who do something. And when I read about what they do, I think, yes, I'm glad these people are really doing something. So it kind of, you know, it's good to know that. And at the same time, to again be careful of all the world, to see what is it I can do, in what I would call the concentric circle. ourselves, people around us, people in the village, people in the country, people in the world. I think, and we can do this in many different ways, but we cannot do everything at once. I think each of us has our limits. I think this is very important to see. Somebody will work for Amnesty International. Somebody will, you know, everybody do what they can do within their possibility. I think this is very important to see. What is it to come back to the concrete? What is it I can do now? What is it I do already? What is, in a way, my limitation in terms of physical, financial, or whatever it is? But yes, it is part, yes, nowadays very much part of our society, this bombardment. And how can we creatively engage with that?